When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, we are talking about civil disobedience with Eraldo Souza dos Santos. And Eraldo, thank you so much for coming to High Theory. This is such a pleasure. Can I ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. So thank you very much for having me. I am Eraldo Sousa dos Santos. I am a Brazilian scholar, a philosopher, and a historian of political thought. And I'm now writing a book on the history of civil disobedience. I'm pretty much interested in the ways in which political concepts shape reality and in the ways in which political actors contest the meaning of political concepts, especially concepts such as violence and civil disobedience. So you're the perfect person to ask this question. What the heck is civil disobedience? You know, that's perhaps the main or the key question in my book, precisely because nobody seems to agree upon what civil disobedience means. There is a definition of civil disobedience that's now considered to be the standard definition of civil disobedience, which was offered by American philosopher John Rawls in his book, A Theory of Justice, which was published in 1971. And his definition was... Civil disobedience is a public, nonviolent, conscious, yet political act, contrary to law, usually done with the aim of bringing about a change in the law or policies of the government. This definition has been used by activists, by political commentators, by historians and judges today, although many activists, many scholars have been contesting how useful this definition is to understand new forms of activism from Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter, Anonymous, and the acts of Edward Snowden. So civil disobedience is, from this point of view, one of the most contested concepts, especially in places like India, the US, France, and Germany. You mentioned India, and when you talk about civil disobedience, the name of Gandhi, of course, comes up pretty early on. And Gandhi's civil disobedience, or as he termed it, Satyagraha, which is technically means a fight for truth, had a very distinct spiritual element. So my question is, of course, not all civil disobedience movements has that element. But my question there is, when we think of realms of lived reality that civil disobedience brings together, and so we can kind of see that although Rawls's definition maybe is kind of exclusively political, there are other ways to do this. And Gandhi's way was very much, spirituality was definitely not like on the back burner, it was front and center. So what other kind of affiliations could it have, if that makes sense? 
Sure, it does make sense. And one of the parts of my, the, the initial part of my project, especially focused on how Gandhi tried to conceptualize civil disobedience. And as you said, it's for sure very different from the ways in which African-American activists, American pacifists in general, and American scholars try to conceptualize it. And what I try to show is that especially when Gandhi comes back to India in the 20s, he focuses a lot. I mean, he comes back from South Africa before, but during the 20s, he focused on the ways in which civil disobedience should be perhaps, as he says, complete. That we should not only disobey unjust laws, but every state made laws to use his own words. So complete civil disobedience for Gandhi is part of a kind of general project of creating the possibilities for an enlightened anarchy. Again, using a phrase that he mobilizes in his text during the 30s. Right. So civil disobedience was about making it possible to live non-violently, and it was impossible for Gandhi to live non-violently under a state. Right. So it was necessary for him to abolish the state for that. American scholars like Rawls and many other activists as well tried instead to constitutionalize civil disobedience, to make civil disobedience compatible right. with the American constitutional system and its institutions. Right. For sure, for many scholars, including Rawls, spirituality was a problem because it can be said to impede people to act together, to act in concert, because everyone, as liberals says, have different conceptions of the good. Right. But I would say that this more spiritual tradition is still alive until today. And we can see, although in very different forms, in the work of African-American Christians and still today, in the ways in which many, I would say, environmental movements have been trying to recover notions of spirituality, even though not necessarily based on religious values, but also, for example, in connection to nature and so on and so forth. Right. From this point of view, I would say Gandhi is still pretty much alive in our imaginary of civil disobedience. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was also thinking that a direct influence of Gandhi's movement was on MLK Jr. and the civil rights movement, and which was also very much based in a religious understanding of what justice is. Mm -hmm. But I do want to ask you a more specific question about your book, which we are so excited to read when it comes out. But we talked about Gandhi, we talked about the civil rights movement, we talked about briefly Occupy. But what other contemporary movements are you looking at in the book? That's a terrific question. So actually my contribution to this debate is a more historiographical one. So I come back to one century of history to see the ways in which the meanings of the concept of civil disobedience shifted between the West, India, and back. But I have been pretty much interested not only in these movements I mentioned, for example, new forms of activism, digital activism, for example, related to hacktivism, or not only movements such as Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street, but more recently, I have been following with great interest, for example, the civil disobedience movement in Myanmar, which started just a few days after the coup d'etat in February 2021. So these are the movements that interest me the most when I am trying to recover the history of civil disobedience. And I would like with my book perhaps to contribute to debates about these movements, 
especially because I do have the impression that Rawls definition and many other definitions offered by liberals in the US during the 50s and 60s are used today to chastise every new form of civil disobedience because they don't technically correspond to what we are supposed to think civil disobedience means. Right. So Myanmar, civil disobedience movements in Sudan as well, activists who are actually taking seriously the concept of civil disobedience in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong, these are the people that are at least the starting point of my investigation. So let me ask you my second question, which is, how do we use civil disobedience? Sure. So again, I think it pretty much depends on what you think civil disobedience means. Right. But I would say that in general, people consider civil disobedience to be an illegal form of action. So when you practice civil disobedience, you are actually breaking the law. Right. You usually have political goals and you usually are said to be acting non-violently. You are also said to be acting public and you are actually saying, say to try to make other people to act in concert with you. Right. The question for sure is that many people do think that these features are not enough to characterize civil disobedience. And perhaps you have seen the ways in which right-wing movements have been using more and more this concept to justify their actions. Mm. And they do say they are part of the same tradition of which, for example, Gandhi and King were. Right. Right. So I would say using civil disobedience means, first of all, using civil disobedience as a concept. Right. You deciding, first of all, that you would like to define and use the concept of civil disobedience to define your activities and the ways in which you act according to this tradition that you give shape to in your discourse. Right. If you think, for example, that King, Gandhi and other activists are part of your family tree, I think it somehow shows your effort to be practicing civil disobedience. After that, I do think we have a more political question, which is whether everyone can actually claim to be practicing civil disobedience. We can also discuss whether civil disobedience must be nonviolent or not, what nonviolence or violence mean, and so on and so forth. But in general, as I said, I think these are or tend to be the main features of civil disobedience, which are, in any case, contested all the time until today. Right. Listening to you makes me think that a kind of, I do not have the reading to kind of comment on intellectual affiliations that right-wing violent movements claim with Martin Luther King and Gandhi. But I will say, though, that I guess thinking of civil disobedience in terms of a political grammar and nothing else, where, where the attention should be on the concept of justice and who, who benefits and who doesn't. Sure. Okay. From those vague ruminations, let me ask you an equally vague question, which is how will civil disobedience save the world? Sure. So I do think that, as you have just said, it's very important to take seriously the fact that not everyone who claims to be practicing civil disobedience should perhaps be called a civil disobedience 
by us. Right. And I think it's part of the process by which, in general, we have to take seriously the fact that political concepts should not replace our political judgment. And I think that, for example, Erin Pineda makes this point perfectly in her new book on civil disobedience entitled Seeing Civil Disobedience Like a State. And why I say so? Because we do tend to think that it's only because activists are using the concept that we should necessarily use this concept to define their actions. Right. Sometimes the main question is not whether it's civil disobedience or not. The main question is whether it's justified or not, right. whether it's acceptable or not. And I think the main claim of this movement is to say that the most important question here is whether they are part of the same tradition of King and Gandhi, and why? Because I would say that we tend more and more, especially since the 50s, to focus more on the tactics, whether they are peaceful, nonviolent or not, for example, and not to focus on the goals of these movements, which are, in the case of uh, right-wing extremism, extremely problematic. Right. And I would say that even peaceful protests is perhaps not justified in all cases when it comes about discussing, for example, political goals that are reprehensible. But whether civil disobedience can change the world? That's a terrific question. I would say that the main problem is that for many people, not only conservatives, not only right-wing extremists sometimes, civil disobedience is too radical. Mm. It endangers our societies. It puts in danger the rule of law, which should be a basic democratic value and so on and so forth. Right. At the same time, many left-wing activists that think that civil disobedience is not radical enough. And I think we can clearly see that during the 70s, a period in which most activists were not relying on such concepts such as civil disobedience or nonviolent resistance, but rather on concepts such as revolutionary action, revolution, and so on and so forth. Right. So I think that's somehow the conundrum of civil disobedience. Somehow nobody seems to be happy with the concept. Some liberals seem to be. Some right-wing extremists seem to be as well. Some left-wing extremists, not extremists perhaps, but some left-wing activists seem to be happy with the concept too. And I would say at the same time that the most important question here is not whether civil disobedience is radical or not, but whether civil disobedience can help us to save the world in specific contexts context in which perhaps this kind of nonviolent action, which is at the same time in most cases coercive, uh, disruptive as well, can help us to fight, for example, against racism, to fight against militarism, against capitalism, against the environmental crisis that we are facing. I think that's perhaps a question we should be asking ourselves, not whether civil disobedience in general is conservative, radical or not, but whether civil disobedience can help us in a specific context, in specific situations, to answer questions about justice and injustice. That sounds wonderful. And when the book comes out, maybe we can talk again. Sure. That would be great. <laughs> thank you. Eraldo, thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about civil disobedience. This was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Aria Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharnik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. 
We hope you have a highly theoretical day.